Hey listeners, welcome back to Life in the Flatlands. I am so glad you're joining us today. I'm one of your hosts, Tana. And I'm your other host, Lindsay. And today we're going to be talking about a really exciting topic. We're going to be talking a little bit about foraging and a lot about entomophagy. And we'll get into more of the detail about about what uh, entomophagy is. But the gist of it is that we're going to be talking about eating insects today. And I'm so excited. I can feel the crunch. Oh, the crunch. <laughs> um, so we're going to discuss the role that foraging has like in our evolutionary diets. So from a historic perspective, but also our modern perspective and kind of the cultural influence of that, some of the stigma behind eating insects, and also the associated health benefits. And we'll be able to consider some of the best practices if you're interested interested in embracing entomophagy as part of your diet. So to chat with us today, I am so excited to introduce Miss Amy Bowsman. Amy is a dear friend of mine. Um, she is also a functional nutritional therapy practitioner at the Atma Clinic in Lawrence, Kansas. So Amy, welcome and thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Tana. Well, um, I'm really excited that you're here today, and you, you and I have a little bit of background, a little history to talk about. We uh, we like to call it a domance because we <laughs> we like to hunt deer together. Um, so Amy and I met on a uh, on a dove hunt with one of our partner groups, Wilderness, and so since then we've been hunting buddies and kind of stumbling through. Uh, life as adult onset hunters together. So it's so fun to interact with you in this capacity as well. It is. Thank you so much for bringing me into it, Tana. So Amy, if you would start off, obviously I know and adore you, but would you give our listeners a little bit of background about you, um, your personal life, and maybe describe your career and what it is that you do? Oh, for sure. Um, I will try to simplify my answer because <laughs> there's a lot I could go into with just that alone. Let's see. Personal life. I am outdoors as much as possible. It really is my passion to light up and keep on what I call my ancestor cells that we all have. And I light those up by being outside and hiking, foraging, paying attention to the natural world and being curious and playful and inquisitive in that uh, biologically intended environment that we're all meant for. And I'm a single mom of two kids and I try to bring them out on my adventures as much as I possibly can. And let's see, of course, hunting and fishing is a part of that, foraging, looking for insects and anything with nutrient density that I can get my paws on. Professionally, I work at the Atma Clinic in Lawrence, Kansas, and as a functional nutritional therapy practitioner, I am daily helping people who are suffering from chronic diseases, unsolved mystery symptoms, um, mainly digestive and autoimmune issues, though I deal with a lot of blood sugar handling, imbalances, hormonal imbalances, and trying to put into remission and reverse the effects of some of the more man-made or modern-made diseases that we deal with today. And I do that through the usage of ancestral food practices, what we're meant for on a protein, fat, and carbohydrate basis, and getting as much nutrient density into my client's cells as humanly possible. Oh, wow. Ta-da. Oh, that's <laughs> fascinating. It's incredible. I'm just like, oh, I want to be friends with you too. <laughs> Amy, you should oh, the tell capacity us. capacity of the work is massive. <laughs> no um, doubt. Um, yeah. When Amy and I deer hunted together, Amy made an absolutely beautiful, fantastic, ethical um, shot on this deer in order to harvest it. However, Amy was heartbroken and so disappointed because she was so looking forward to consuming the heart, which is so nutrient dense. Um, and, and she made a, a fantastic shot, but it, it just cracked me up to think that the perspective I was looking at that deer as far as, oh, there's some back straps, like there's some nice roast. Amy was looking at the heart and the liver and thinking about that nutritional content. So I love it. It's cool. This deer that I harvested in December, I actually got to consume the heart and this is the first time I had eaten deer heart and and, oh my gosh, I have been missing out on yeah. the 
sheer goodness that the heart really is. I mean, frankly, it took me a minute to kind of work past my own mental block of it. But once I finally did, I was like, man, I'm going to have all the tacos. And oh, it was so good. So if you if for you listeners who haven't tried Dear Heart yet, I highly recommend it. It's so good. And super nutritious. Um, (laughs) But Amy, uh, Tana has been mentioning mentioned a couple of times that you are a adult onset hunter. Um, and I'm curious, was this decision informed or influenced by your career? Um, was food the main motive motivation to start hunting? Yeah, I love those questions. Um, I grew up fishing from a very young age and did a lot of fishing with my dad growing up. And we did some frog gigging, which I feel was kind of the gateway into wanting to develop more skills as a hunter. Uh, My dad hunted things like dove and squirrels and turkeys, but no, no big game. And I remember at age 18 or so begging him to take me on a turkey hunt and he did. And I fell asleep on a sunny rock, (laughs) you know, at (laughs) six o'clock in the morning or whatever, but it was a really sweet experience to share with my dad So I'd had a desire to hunt for over, well, I guess about 20 years and just didn't have the resources for it until wilderness popped into my radar. And that's what got it started for me. And it wasn't the work that I do professionally. Like I said, it was a seed that had been planted 20 or more years ago but I just didn't know how to approach it on my own as a single woman that didn't grow up being taught those skills. And so Wilderness, the organization, just blew it all open for me and rocked and radicalized my life with hunting. And now I'm to a point a little over a year later to where I, you know, have my own uh, resources to go out into the field and feel confident in doing so. And if you're interested in learning more about that wilderness organization, we do actually have a podcast um, where I go out in the field with the wilderness ladies on one of their duck hunts. It's called Maidens, Mallards, and Marshes, and you can learn a little bit more about their mission and how they bring women like Amy and I together in the outdoors. So um, definitely go check that out. But Amy, speaking of wilderness, you have some teaching knowledge and experience as well. Uh, You recently taught at a wilderness event, right? I did, and I taught entomophagy at that class, that <laughs> event, and it was so wonderful. I've been doing wild foraging for medicinal and edible native plants, taking people out on guided hikes for, I don't know, maybe 15 years or so, and I had field experience with teaching that way. I've taught in the, the literal classroom at Kansas City, Kansas Community College, Um, I taught on the Rosebud Reservation, adult basic education, so I have some formal classroom experience, but I have a lot of field work experience, too, mostly with ID hikes, though at the wilderness um, kind of weekend retreat, I did a a hike for them, and I did an entomophagy class that was just so much fun, and I want to do this class, like, everywhere I go. There were six brave souls that signed up for this class that I think were heavily influenced by one of the co-founders, Jess Rice. (laughs) She was really trying to recruit people for me because it is one of those taboo topics, like eating organs, like eating the deer heart. And uh, these ladies were such troopers. We kind of paired up and went out into the field and rolled over logs and peeled off bark from dead trees and rolled over stones and collected as we went along whatever we could find insect and larvae wise. And at one point, our group just kind of organically met up towards the end and we ended up in a field of grasshoppers. And without nets, those guys are pretty tricky to catch. So we developed this uh, method of kind of teaming up on the grasshoppers and, and catching them as a group. And it was such a great experience to share. And then I took my backpacking stove and a skillet and showed how to properly prepare the insects, cook them on site. And everyone 
tried it and everyone liked it. Like not one person was like, ooh, this is gross. I'm never going to do this again. As a matter of fact, Wilderness got some positive feedback immediately after the weekend that these ladies went back home to their families and found roly-polies or found crickets or grasshoppers or whatever and prepared them like we did in class and shared them with their family. And so that was such a great experience that I was able to knock down some taboo walls and barriers for people getting this biologically intended, crazy nutrient-dense food into their bodies, and it was a ripple effect. They, they spread it to their families, to their kids, and I'm sure the kids went off to school and talked about it, and <laughs> who knows, you know, how far that wildfire of inspiration went. So, yeah, some teaching experience uh, formally and more actively in the nature's classroom. Amy, <laughs> I have to tell you, I'm freaking out right now. <laughs> this, is, this is incredible. I mean, I'm trying to be quiet while I listen to you explain this, but I'm over here like silently cheering. Oh, it's about, a fangirl moment. Yes, Full. absolutely. Like, Tan and I are like making eye contact over these microphones and just huge grins on our faces. Like, oh my gosh, that's, this is awesome. Well, and as a testament to Amy's like, I don't know, investment in um, wild foraging and entomophagy and all these things. She actually carries that skillet she mentioned. She doesn't go anywhere without it. She's <laughs> always got that with her. Isn't that right, Amy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's why I love sharing it so much. That's why anytime I'm asked to do a podcast or a workshop or an event, it's all volunteer based. But to me, it's so important to share this information that I just jump on any possible opportunity I can to spread the message so that other people can have this knowledge with them wherever they go. I'm not, this isn't some special skill of mine. It's something that I have practiced and researched and studied for, you know, 20 years or so, and anybody can do that. So it's, again, what we're intended for. And typically when we reconnect with the things that we're intended for, it feeds us, it nourishes us in a different way, in a soulful way. And yeah, you feel that excitement. I mean, that's what it is. Your ancestor cells are talking to you and turning on and lighting up and saying, feed me, feed me, show me, you know. That's such amazing perspective. And if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm already hooked. How do I meet Amy? We are actually so excited to have Amy come and instruct at our upcoming Becoming an Outdoors Woman course. Um, that'll be in the spring. It's a weekend event out at Rock Springs 4-H Center. Uh, registration opens up for first-time participants February 15th and then for everybody March 1st. So even if you've been before, you can come back. Amy has such a broad base of knowledge, and at this event, she'll actually be teaching fly fishing. However, we're talking about doing maybe a little mini session in the evening um, just to tease this topic, and then we hope to have Amy come back and teach full classes with us because we are so excited about this. So come to BOW, come meet Amy, and uh, eat some insects. Yeah, I was sitting here this whole time thinking that I wish I had attended one of your classes in the past or met you on some wilderness event or, or something, but now I can pick your brain at BOW, so get ready for that. <laughs> yeah, for sure, and I, I mean, I really don't know how everything's going to be structured, but I'm there, and I'm a super like laid-back fluid organic kind of person so if somebody wants to come up and learn a new skill or ask me about a plant or an insect or whatever I'm happy to share on the spot anytime awesome okay so I I'm curious how you keep mentioning how our ancestors are coming out in us and it's like feed me I want to eat in the way that my ancestors were eating. How do diets today differ from those of our ancestors? Yeah, um, you know, I saw that question on our outline and I kind of chuckled to myself because I thought that's a whole episode on its own. That's a <laughs> really loaded question and it's hard for me not to go into the historical timeline and the background, but how I sum it up for my clients because it's, important to me that my clients and anybody I work on, whether it's, you know, on a casual, informal basis at an event or in the clinical setting, it's important to me that anyone I share this information with understands kind of this encapsulated view of where we've come from, 
what we're intended for versus what we have in our modern industrialized food culture. It's, it's massively different, and it is at the root of most of our health issues today, just this, this extreme contrast between what we're intended for and what we have in the modern world. So biologically, cellularly, genetically, we have not changed one bit in 75,000 years. And if you think about how hunter-gatherers were living and eating 75,000 years ago, it's massively different than what we have today, right? So I would say that the, the biggest difference beyond the, the high amount of processing that our food goes through, we lose nutrient density in many ways. And there are a couple of great books that lay this out. I'm sure you can get audio versions of them somewhere. The one that is the most recently published is called Eat Like a Human by Dr. Bill Schindler. And Bill Schindler is an experimental archeologist who was on a show, this awesome show that I didn't even know about. It was out in 2016, and you can watch it through Amazon. It's called The Great Human Race with Bill Schindler and Kat Bigney, who is a badass, beautiful female primitive skills um, expert. And they both go out through <laughs> into the field. They are transplanted in different areas, while wilderness areas, throughout human history timeline and only have access to the tool technology that would have been available, you know, 500,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, whatever, and have to seek out, you know, how to build shelters, how to get food and nourishment. And I feel like that's a great way to learn a little bit more about the historical development of our food systems. Um, and then he, Dr. Bill Schindler, wrote this book, Eat Like a Human, which totally blew my mind. It's fascinating. It's a great little timeline of humans uh, eating habits. And then another one, another book that's a great resource that goes more in depth about this is called Eating on the Wild Side. And that's by Joe Robinson. Another great book that talks about how the cultivation and domestication of our wild foods into our grocery store varieties over time has really bred out the nutrition of our food. And of course, if we think about the soil of our health, that affects the nutrient density of our food. Um, but cultivation and domestication alone has typically bred food to be bigger, to be, feed more people and higher in sugar because that's what appeals to the human taste buds, the human, the primal brain. So two great resources right there that go into a little bit of that, that historical timeline um, as far as the difference between what we're intended for and what we eat. What I like to tell my clients, again, is that we haven't changed in 75,000 years cellularly, biologically. We still have this primal part of our brain that will always seek out and prioritize carbohydrates sugars, right? Because those sugars give us quick bursts of energy to run away from predators or to chase down our food or to conserve energy through a starvation period. But we would have had very little access to super limited amounts of sugars and natural sugars and carbohydrates ancestrally. But today, I mean, that's the main macronutrient, processed sugars, processed carbohydrates galore. I mean, that is what most uh, westernized, industrialized cultures are calorizing themselves with, are these more empty, highly processed and refined carbohydrates, because the primal brain still goes, you need it, you need it, you need it. So when we go into a grocery store or a gas station or a restaurant, we're surrounded by carbohydrates. I mean, that's, we've got easy access to lots of different forms of carbohydrates. So we almost have to do this intentional rewiring in the primal brain that says, even though it's there doesn't mean you need it now because 
for the most part, we're not running away from predators. We're not chasing down food. We're not having to survive long stretches through the cold months without food. We're way more inactive and sedentary than we would have been ancestrally. So we don't need those high amounts of carbohydrates, right? So our modern lifestyle is totally mismatched with what we're still biologically intended for. And it's wreaked havoc on our health um, as well as, you know, those high amounts of sugars and carbohydrates and a lack of inactivity or a lack of activity combined with higher amounts of refined and processed seed and vegetable oils in these processed foods creates a lot of inflammation and a lot of imbalance in the body. Um, so really the, there, it's, it's a loaded question that you asked about, you know, what we're intended for and our nutrient density. And I mean, it's, it's a huge, huge topic. Yeah. I keep wishing that our podcast was three hours long know, instead right? of one yeah. hour. <laughs> I could listen to you talk forever. Amy. I could too. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Well, it's clearly I'm passionate about it and I like to share the information. So I'm happy to talk more, more in depth about another topic. Well, yeah, we'll definitely have to have you back. But um, so far, we've talked a lot about what our ancestral diets were not, which was these high sugar foods, these carbohydrates, this highly processed material. But I think we need to talk a little bit about what our ancestral diets were made up of. And part of that makeup is insects. So will you talk to us a little bit about the role of insects in our ancestral diet and in some of our even more modern diets? For sure. Yeah. I think it's like 80% of the world's population still intentionally consumes insects. So really us Westerners being weirded out by it, we're, we're the weird ones. Like we're, <laughs> you know, as far as like the world goes, we're the odd man out. Um, with not eating insects, but historically, it would have been a really important main protein resource for our hunter-gatherer ancestors. And with foraging, it was typically women, children, and the elderly that would go out foraging during the day while men would go out and, and try to go on these bigger game hunts. So every day that these women, children, and elderly were going out foraging, they were collecting insects intentionally for the main protein source for the tribe. They would get uh, larvae for fat, insects for complete protein. So with most insects, you have an exoskeleton, and those are just, they're like bones. They're incredibly mineral rich. You're consuming the organs, the internal organs of the insect, which we've already talked a little bit about just having this incredible nutrient density. It's all wrapped up into one tight little tiny package, and it packs just a massive punch of nutrition as far as vitamins and minerals goes um, for the body. It's a complete protein so foragers would have been collecting some plant sources and a lot of insects as they went along. And that was really the, the mainstay protein source for tribal hunter-gatherer kinds of people. Big game was important because it, a lot of it could be preserved. It would go a long ways. There were the wonderful organs that would feed more people. There were the bones, the blood. I mean, you know, ancestors definitely did nose-to-tail cooking and utilize the whole animal. For us today, you know, it, it, that's a hard barrier to overcome. There's this taboo myth of these off-limits foods and parts of animals. And then I feel like it's easier to get the whole animal experience through an insect than it is for a lot of people than like sitting down and eating some amazing grilled deer heart. You know, it, it seems like it's more of a hump to get over to eat the organs from like a juicy, bloody animal than it is about <laughs> an insect that you can just boil up and then pan fry and or put its powder into a protein shake. 
Um, it, there's really easy ways to incorporate insects into the diet, but like organs, they're just a, a, a massive power punch of nutrition. In the parts of the world where humans do still consume insects or never stopped consuming insects, does that look like a, a forager gatherer um, perspective or are we starting to see that influx of agriculture to where, I mean, are people farming crickets? Like, yeah. what does this look oh, like? Yeah. Has this gone commercial? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's gone commercial. And uh, I don't have a problem with that, honestly, because insects are being touted as the sustainable protein of the future. Right. And that they can ethically be raised in a small space in a quick amount of time. They have a quick turnaround time from hatching to harvesting. And the, their input, their water requirements, their food requirements are way reduced than our larger mammals. Um, so, yes, they're being grown commercially. And more so in, like, Asian cultures, that's what you see, you know, people coming to market with loads of fresh or roasted insects and, you know, just barrel after barrel of them, Um so yeah, there are some that forage still, of course, more traditional societies, but the commercialization of it is definitely a thing worldwide. There's a story I like to share from a group of people in southern India who, because of religious beliefs, don't consume animals. And I shared this on the She Goes Outdoors podcast, but it's so worth repeating because it's an important, more scientific display of how important a complete protein is in the diet, like what we get from insects. In Southern India, currently, in today's modern times, they have the poorest health rates of any culture in the world just massive nutrient deficiencies, lots of health issues and no animal consumption whatsoever, maybe um, cow's milk. So when they were growing their own grains in the field and harvesting them fresh, they would store them in burlap bags that had some airflow through them. During the storage process, when they harvested these grains and legumes fresh, they also harvested insects and they harvested insect larvae and that larvae would eventually, you know, transform and become an insect and people consumed them consciously knowing that there were insects and larvae within the grains, within the legumes. And when they consumed it that way, they, their health rates were fine. No, no massive issues like what they have today, no significant nutrient deficiencies like there is today. So even that practice has changed because they're relying more now on bigger agriculture industry to supply their grains. They've lost their little family or community farms and gardens. And those grains and legumes now go through high heat processing to kill everything off of it. You know, the things that otherwise we want to have more of a nutritious food. Um, so, you know, it's just interesting as and and totally disheartening to see the decline of a culture like that based on this one change of removing insects and larvae from their diets. I'm just at a loss for words right now. Isn't this cool? It's so cool. <laughs> Fascinated. Okay. You guys, I talk about this stuff all day and I obviously nerd out on it. So it's like, yeah. it's still fascinating and exciting to me, but it's even more exciting to see that you guys are... Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm already I'm kind of thinking about my own personal ways to start adding more insects to my diet. Uh -huh. And I keep thinking back to my time at the Great Plains Nature Center when we would have to care for our animal ambassadors and we would raise our own crickets to feed to some of these animals and the space that it would take up to actually pr like grow your own pro your, your own protein in this way would be like a, a file drawer of space to yeah, just grow your totally. own protein. And that's just, it's blowing my mind to even think about this. Um, so my next question for you is when I start to grow my own protein, like crickets, um, how would I, what's a common way to prepare them? Oh yeah. Good question. Um, my favorite way is a quick kind of parboil 
And an easy way to do it, now I'm not able to do this in the field for a class, of course, but I find the more ethical way is to put your harvest in a glass jar with a lid on it and put that in your freezer. And it, you know, definitely makes the insects go into dormancy and then kind of parboil them and then pan fry them. With the crickets, you want to pull off, especially the back legs with the barbs on them because those are uncomfortable when they get caught in the throat, which easily happens. Ooh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Crickets and grasshoppers, you want to take those back legs off. I usually take all the legs off, but, um, you know, the, the front legs are definitely not as troublesome as the back legs. Mm. So a quick parboil and then a pan fry and some fat and mix it into whatever you want. I mean, you can put them into soup, stews. I know a lot of people make like cricket tacos. That's pretty common. You can mix it in (laughs) with other proteins. You can season them however you want. I mean, most people say like, this is, isn't this just the most common thing you hear with wild game? Oh, it tastes like chicken. Like that's what most people (laughs) say. It's like crispy chicken. It's protein. It's a very neutral white meat earthy kind of chicken taste so it adapts to other flavors very easily wow that's awesome okay so before I can move into my cabinet drawer of crickets um, (laughs) I want to kind (laughs) of test this out first um, which would look like me going out pulling up some rocks, rolling over boulders, picking up my, gathering my own crickets from the wild or grasshoppers or whatever insect I happen to come across. Um, my question is, is there a wrong insect that you can consume? Like if I'm out there, can I just eat anything that I find? Or is there some insects that are better for consumption as opposed to others? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, the real safe ones that are a sure shot, so long as you're in a a clean environment, crickets, grasshoppers, cicadas, um, most larvae, termite larvae. I mean, we ate some termite larvae at the wilderness weekend. Um, Wasp larvae, if you can find some. People who keep bees, there is a uh, waxwing moth, I think is what it's called, that will often take over hot beehives, honey beehives, and you can eat those with just a quick pan fry. Um, let's see, what else are some more common ones that you can consume without concern? I guess it really pulleys, grasshoppers, crickets, cicadas, larvae of most kinds, ants, termites. Um, what about spiders? I mean, like really, I mean, spiders. Spiders, yeah, magnets. spiders. Most spiders, except for I avoid poisonous spiders. Probably spiders are not my favorite. They are really bitter. Mm. And, oh, okay. Oh yeah, and bitter and like juicy and oh, um, that you know, I've tried them, but they're just not my favorite. Okay. Most people will go, oh, worms. Like I'll just survive off worms, and you don't want to do that. Actually, worms and go through a process to be really safe to consume. And it, to me, it just becomes kind of ridiculous because at this point, after I described the method, you're just eating cornmeal basically. But most people will put worms in cornmeal for, uh, you know, maybe five days until everything, all the soil has worked through their digestive system uh, before they're safe to consume. Okay. Because otherwise grubs, you're just eating. are a great one. To consume, um, I avoid centipedes and millipedes also. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, I have a question yeah. about the roly polies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, more and more questions are just going to come up. I'm going to yeah, apologize in advance. Course. When no, I flip no. over a rock and I see a bunch of roly polies, is that a situation where I can just pick them up and pop them in my mouth like a little like a little snack while I'm out there Mm-mm. looking for my stinging nettles? No. Okay. <laughs> no, no. The only thing I really snack on on the spot are ants and like sugar ants. And I mean, you don't get much from that. You just get the kind of the sharp, lemony, Mm -hmm. acidic taste from them. There's not a ton of nutrition in them. Um, Really pulleys, I don't do the boil on. I'll just do a straight fry in a cast iron skillet, either a dry fry or with a little bit of fat. I'm so excited. Follow-up episode, we go in the field, get our own bugs, and cook them. Yeah, we eat insects with Amy. (laughs) Yeah, you know what? Seriously, that has been my, probably my highlight favorite 
teaching experience so far was the entomophagy field class. Oh my gosh. Maybe we need a supplementary uh, Flatlander podcast like video where we (gasps) actually take you guys with us in the field and you can see our faces as we're munching on roly polies. And Amy, your kids really like the roly polies, don't they? My daughter did. Uh, She would still eat probably just about anything that I put in front of her. My son is 13 now, so he's just kind of like, meh, whatever, like been there, done that. (laughs) Um, But yeah, my daughter, when she was about three years, three or four years old, she went to this primitive skills workshop with me, Bo Brown's workshop in the Ozarks, where I consumed insects for the first time. And she was there right alongside me foraging and experimenting and trying things. And for months afterwards, this darling little three and a half year old would toddle outside, flip over rocks, (laughs) come to me with little handfuls of roly polies and ask me to cook them for her. And I would, I would wash them. I'd rinse them under cold water and put them in a pan and fry them up. And she'd, she'd crunch them like popcorn. You know, and I I loved it because it was normalized for her at an early age, which is also why I do this so that parents can pass this on to their kids or maybe I can reach kids before it's too late um, and break down these taboo barriers to eating some of the world's most nutrient dense foods. Oh, (laughs) that's so fascinating. This is awesome. Okay. I have a couple more follow-up questions. When you are consuming them like popcorn, Mm -hmm. there's always kind of that like warning label on some organs of larger mammals. Is there Mm -hmm. any kind of concern relating to that when it comes to consuming the organs of insects? No, no, not if you cook them. Um, More so with insects, you have to be worried about if they're carrying parasites the cooking process kills that off. The heat kills parasites. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. With organs of mammals and bigger animals, the concern is, well, nutrient density for one, you can overdo iron and, you know, certain B vitamins. Your body just can't process that much at once. But the bigger concern is the toxin holding abilities of animals holding toxins in their fat cells And, you know, the liver being more of a toxin filter for mammals. And so you don't want to consume the organs from conventionally raised um, or animals raised in confinement. I would never eat the fat or the organs from those animals just because they're so packed full of toxins. But, you know, with a wild insect, you're not going to run into that problem. So you're telling me I shouldn't have a drawer full of crickets. (laughs) oh no 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 no. i mean you will be feeding them good things okay let me back that up no that that you you growing your own is awesome that's ideal i am a full full support and advocate of that practice because you'll be feeding them quality foods gotcha that makes sense yes well and there's something to be said for like the biomagnification too and the argument of like eating lower on the food chain so that those toxins like you mentioned amy aren't building up in these critters the higher you go up in the food chain. So, I mean, eating small in the food chain, eating insects, like that that's clicking in my brain. Mm-hmm. For sure. Most yeah. of the time when I think about insects where I can find a lot of them, it's like agricultural fields. And a concern that I would also have would be like pesticides and insecticides. Are, are there safer places that you should be harvesting or collecting these insects? Can, can you tell us more about the pesticide, insecticide side of things? Oh, for sure. And it's a valid concern. And uh, it, and it relates to any kind of foraging, whether you're foraging plants, mushrooms, uh, insects, you want to do it in a chemical-free zone, definitely away from chemical fertilizers, chemical insecticides, um, you know, fungicides definitely want to be far away from those areas. So getting to more natural environments is important. Even, even a neighborhood yard, unfortunately, isn't that safe because plenty of your neighbors are probably spraying Roundup and insecticides in their lawns. 
So that is something that you should be really conscious of when foraging for insects. So outside of that, like the toxin concern um, and these insecticides, pesticides, making sure that those insects you are consuming are um, eating quality diets. What are some other foraging best practices that we can pass on to our listeners? You know, I was taught not to take more than 20% of a plant population. And there's another book. This is the last book I'm going (laughs) to refer to. I promise. I mean, I don't promise, but it probably will be the last. It's the last one I have planned to refer to. So this is what keeps me going in this field as well. What keeps me excited is that I'm constantly reading about this stuff. And what I watch, I don't watch a lot. Um, of shows, but when I do, it's related to this kind of stuff. Primitive skills, hunter-gatherer culture. Um, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Kimmerer. Uh, Robin is an indigenous woman, Potawatomi um, heritage, and she tells stories about ethical foraging practices from the indigenous perspective, the indigenous American perspective. And it's a beautiful book. And um, I really like that perspective. You know, some of the indigenous recommendations are that when you're going out foraging, let's say, you know, nettles were mentioned. And that's, you know, very commonly forested or foraged food in the wild that let's say you see the first population that you come to. You don't harvest from that first patch that you find you can go to the next patch and forage from there her tenants say to not take more than 50 percent of a population i was taught not to take more than 20 percent of a population and when it comes to wild foods and wild medicines if anything is on an endangered list or a watch list like um, medicine, for example, would be golden seal, uh, blood roots. These are things that were over harvested back in the early 1900s. You want to leave those alone completely. But looking at plant communities and honoring what that plant or what that food is giving for your nourishment and taking only for your needs to ensure that you're not over harvesting um, and and tapping out a natural food system and not tapping out the ecosystem around that food that relies on it. Those are some more of the ethical foraging practices that I follow. And when I'm looking at a plant community, you can see, start to notice this, like our own families, you can see the children, you know, the youth, which are going to be the newer plants, the newer growth. And then you can kind of see the parent community kind of a mid stand. And then you can see the grandparent community, which is more developed and older maybe past its prime and you want to do most of your foraging from the parent community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, you know, sometimes plants can be pretty hard to identify. So if you're not sure about something that you're looking at, consult an expert, talk to people in the community so that you're actually consuming the plant that you think you're consuming. I mean, there are a lot of plants out there that have lookalikes that are not safe to consume. So, Check, recheck, and then check again just to make sure whatever it is that you're harvesting is what you are hoping that it is. Sure. And same goes for insects. Yeah, absolutely. So Um, I always feel like I'm the one that ends up harping on safety. And safety is super important when you're going into the outdoors, not only for the identification component, but also just like letting someone know where you're going, when you plan to be back. If possible, carry a cell phone just in case of emergencies, even if you keep it off. Um, it's so, so important. And then also ensure, um, Kansas is 98% privately owned. I feel like I say that on every podcast episode, but it's so important to keep in mind because we want to be sure we're not trespassing and we're not putting ourselves into dangerous situations when we are going out and foraging. So definitely something to keep in mind. Yeah. And if you are going out, take a buddy, spread the foraging love. 
Absolutely. Oh, and another one is be aware of other open seasons currently going on. You might mm-hmm. reconsider uh, where you're foraging if there is, um, let's say, firearms deer season going on. Uh, just something to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So true. You know, I've done foraging for a heck of a lot longer than I've done hunting. And I'm lucky to be here. Let's say that. Oh my <laughs> I've gosh. gone out on so much public land during hunting seasons in over the last uh, 18 years and had no idea what season it was, what was going on, did not wear blaze orange. And so those are all really important uh, aspects to bring up for sure. Right. Yeah, and absolutely. with foraging, like you're your target species is not going to get up and run away from you. <laughs> I mean, the insects right. might a little bit, but yeah, it never hurts yeah. to throw on some visibility color, some blaze orange or something like that, just to let others know that you're in the area, regardless of whether or not there's a, an open hunting season going on. And then also, if you do run into folks, um, you can give them a wave and let them know what you're up to. Maybe even like Lindsay said, share that joy. Um, there might be someone that just got skunked on a turkey hunt, but can uh, pick up a couple morel mushrooms or even put a few roly polies in their pocket and head home mm-hmm. not quite so empty handed. <laughs> I love <Yeah>. that. <laughs> okay, Amy. So if our listeners were to start exploring the thought of adding insects to their diets, what steps could they take to start introducing crickets or cicadas or really anything else to the um, their daily meals? Yeah, there are two companies that I really like um, that make cricket protein powders. And for the Wilderness Weekend Retreat, I made cricket flour chocolate chip cookies. And, you know, they went over well. They do have a little bit of an earthy, more grainy aspect to them. Crazy enough, the women, all women in this class, preferred the fresh-cooked insects to the powder. Huh. Um, but but chapool.com, C-H-A-P-U-L, has some cricket-based products. And I like just their 100% pure cricket powder. And again, you can take a third of your wheat or gluten-free baking flour for, you know, swap out a third of a cup with the cricket flour and just get some extra dense protein and minerals in there. Um, On their website, they point out that cricket flour is two times more protein dense than beef, four times, there's four times more iron than spinach per serving, more B12 than salmon, which is a really big deal. And it's a good source of prebiotic fiber, meaning it feeds the beneficial bacteria in our gut. Um, So Chapool is great. And uh, smoothies, that's the easiest way to do it. Do do make a smoothie, your normal smoothie, and add a couple of tablespoons of cricket flour to it. You won't even know it's there, and you'll get a nice little kick of protein. Totally going to do this. Yeah. yeah, it's so easy. The other one is exoprotein, exoprotein.com. And they have bars. They have they have cricket powder as well, but they have protein bars that are really clean and straightforward in their ingredients. Um, and I like both of those companies quite a bit. You know, after this conversation, I'm going to be really suspicious about anything that Lindsay brings to a work food day. (laughs) I can tell the wheels are turning in her brain. Don't be surprised if I show up with a bunch of roly-polies. I'm here for it. (laughs) Well, here's here's another, I guess, safety disclaimer to put out there that anybody who is allergic to shellfish should avoid insects. Great. Great mention. Yeah, I know. that's a big deal. Can you talk about the exoskeleton? Yeah, yeah. So that's like the same properties basically as the shellfish, and like the same family too as well. Yep. Can you talk about that? Yep. I mean, shrimp, lobster, crab. If you know, I tell people all the time, "Hey, you like lobster?" And they usually say yes. And I say it's the same thing. That's what a roly poly is. It's a land lobster. <laughs> I love yes. that. Oh my gosh! Just I want very, a Flatlander T-shirt. Very tiny version of it. <laughs> Amy, I love that. We need Flatlander t-shirts that have roly-polies and say land lobster. Yeah, I would love that. (laughs) 
Okay, so I know in the past, too, we talked about a lot about roly-polies, but I think, didn't you tell me that you really enjoy wasp larvae? I do. That's yeah. something in Bo Brown's Primitive Skills Weekend that um, I discovered how much I liked it. Larvae is pretty much pure fat. So, again, with this ancestral biological intention for our nutrition, fat is the preferred fuel for the body and the brain. The brain's made up of 60% fat. We need healthy fats to feed it. There are no what are called essential nutrients and carbohydrates. There's a lot of micro minerals and nutrients and vitamins, antioxidants and plants, carbohydrates. But what that means is that ancestrally we could have and still can get everything we need from protein and fats. And the fat found in larvae is a very healthy source of um, fatty acids for the body. And fat makes food taste good, even the fat from larvae. It's pretty incredible. It's just, again, a dry fry, a quick dry fry in a cast iron skillet. And it's delicious. I love it. Okay, Amy. When it Mm -hmm. comes to entomophagy or really anything for that matter, what keeps you up at night? Oh, I saw that question on the outline, and I just (laughs) laughed so hard. Um, So can you be more specific? Because I can give some pretty philosophical answers to that question. (laughs) Yeah, well, and that's great. We're just, we love to ask all of our guests that come on, like, what concerns you about the future moving forward, whether that's sustainability or whether that's something about our rights to hunt and fish in this country. Like, what concerns you the most when you think about the future and the world that you want to leave your children, Amy? Yeah, it really is about, for me, it's about sustainability. It's about, without going into any politics like global warming or climate change, that some people take that as a political issue, it is the health of our planet. Just to make that more broad and user-friendly, the health of our planet is what keeps me up at night. Again, going back to this, this indigenous wisdom of you've probably most people have heard by by now of this concept of the next seven generations leaving the planet in a way that the next seven generations will be able to benefit from and i can't say that we're in a position that that's true um when when i was talking earlier about soil depletion and the health of our vegetable sources and our fruit sources, even wild foods that are far more nutrient dense than our organically grown local vegetables are becoming rapidly less nutrient dense because of increased carbon in the atmosphere. And I used to think, okay, I've got these skills to hunt and fish and forage and ID plants and to collect medicine and know how to use them, know how to ID them. But if they're stripped of their nutrition because the way the planet is changing, you know, it's, I mean, that's a really daunting consideration. And I've got kids, you know, it really concerns me about the kind of planet we're leaving behind for the next seven generations. I mean, the next two generations, it's um, definitely the biggest issue that, that riles me up and gives me sleepless nights. Yeah. I think a lot of our listeners can probably relate to that same fear. I know I certainly can. It's a little bit sad how far fetched that seven generation rule seems like, wow. Oh gosh. Yeah. That hurts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's another big part of why I do what I do so that I can at least plant a seed somewhere and have the knowledge, share this knowledge with my kids. And there was a question or a, a, an idea point on the outline for today's show about, you know, why I do what I do and I feel like providing as much of my and my kids' nutrition as close to home and as ethically grown or sourced as possible is the biggest thing I can do to impact the health of our planet. 
And that's what helps clear my conscience a little bit about relying on fossil fuels to run my car to work every day that I go there and to get around town and to use the natural resources that I use to heat my home and have running water, you know, I mean, it's all a part of it. And I feel like it doesn't clear my conscience by any means, but it eases the, the pressure to know that that one aspect of sustainability alone, if you think about how much goes into getting apples or oranges to Kansas in December, you know, I mean, that alone, the trucking of that it has a huge impact. And then sitting in a grocery store that the grocery store is run off of our natural resources. And then we drive our car, most of us to get there. It's, I mean, it's just an incredibly wasteful system. So being able to hunt and forage and garden or go to the farmer's market and provide as much food locally that was ethically sourced is, I feel like, the the biggest impact I can make right now. And listeners, I know what you're thinking. Is Amy Bousman available to be on my apocalypse team? And the answer is no. I already called dibs. Yeah, she's on our team. Yeah, we got her. But we can talk later about you guys joining our team. That's fine. <laughs> uh, so happy to be there. <laughs> so, Amy, what would you pose as a challenge or a goal for our listeners? Because Lindsay's already got crickets in a drawer somewhere. Yeah. I feel it. <laughs> I, I'm going to start a little bit slower, but I want to get there. What's a good goal for our listeners? Honestly, I think if somebody on your team is going to go grow a drawer of crickets, then my job is done. Like, I'm happy. <laughs> Lindsay's an easy target. Uh, <laughs> Well, the resources that I mentioned online, again, that's not locally sourced. You're going to be committing to this, this processing and shipment to get it to your door. But that's a baby step to kind of get over the ooh, taboo factor to see that it's really not that bad. And if that's what it takes to get over that taboo hump so that you go out in the field yourself and forage some crickets or grasshoppers or larvae or whatever – then it's worth it. Um, I personally am a very tactile, hands-on kind of learner, and getting into the field is what fuels me and inspires me. So if you're able to link up with someone, I mean, regionally, I'm, I'm always looking for foraging and hiking buddies. So, you know, I'm more in the Kansas City area now, but... I'm happy to do ID hikes in, in our region and uh, help people get out into the field and know more about what they're looking for so that they can have that experience. But reaching out to your local wildlife department and seeing if there is a local expert, a field biologist, a forager, a, a naturalist, somebody who is willing to go out with you even one time to, you know, help you do some ID work or to get the experience of being outside and reconnecting with what you're intended for, I would encourage everybody to try to go that direction. That is a great challenge, and I'm going to echo that. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. I cannot thank you enough for taking the time out of your day to chat with us about this. I know I'm taking away a lot of notes, some good books I'm going to check out, and a lot of inspiration. Flatlanders, um, be sure to get out there and try something new. And when I mean something, I mean insects. Um, <laughs> while you're at it, go ahead and give us a review, and be sure to follow and like us, uh, KDWP, on Facebook and Instagram. Instagram, and you can also follow Kansas Wildlife Federation. And we'd love to hear from you. Send us your questions. Let us know what you think about the episode. And uh, yeah, remember, what is a state of mind. Flatlander Podcast is made possible through a partnership between the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. Sound and production by Megan Mayhew. Music by Kansas locals, The Box Turtles. Become a member of KWF for free by visiting kansaswildlifefederation.org. And be sure to follow KWF on Facebook 
at Kansas Wildlife Federation and on Instagram at KS Wildlife Fed. Stay up to date on all things KDWP by following the department on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife and Parks and on Instagram at the KDWP. Remember, the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks is supported by flatlanders like you through the sale of licenses and permits. Consider buying a hunting or fishing license today to conserve and protect the wild spaces and faces that make Kansas more than flyover country. Country.